This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be talking to the writer, producer and director of several adaptations of full-length Bradbury works, Jerry Robbins of Colonial Radio Theatre. Bradbury's work has been adapted many times for many media and has been very popular on radio. Earlier in this series, we heard from dramatist Brian Sibley, who adapted a number of Bradbury pieces for BBC Radio, But Bradbury has also been adapted many times for American radio. You may have heard old radio shows like Suspense and X-1, which adapted Bradbury's stories around the time they were first written or first published. The American tradition of radio drama has been kept alive over the years by many people who admire Bradbury's work. In the mid-1980s, there was an excellent series called Bradbury 13, which aired on National Public Radio, produced by Mike McDonough, who later went on to work as a sound designer in film. And this series was made very much in the mould of X-1, and it adapted some of the same stories, but with an updated, state-of-the-art soundscape. Bradbury wasn't directly involved in Bradbury 13, but he did give it his blessing. He contributed a voiceover introduction at the beginning of every episode, and he also contributed to a press conference launching the series. Another good American source of Bradbury radio drama was California Artists Radio Theatre, C-A-R-T, CART, which specialised in recording radio-style drama in front of live audiences. It was founded by actor Peggy Weber, who was, in her words, on a quest to revive radio drama and to help encourage young people to enjoy the spoken word. CART had some big names in their productions, Michael York, Roddy McDowell, Samantha Egger, William Wyndham, David Warner, and CART did a number of Bradbury productions, including a 75th birthday special, an 80th birthday special, both made up of a number of dramatised short stories and book chapters, and a production based on the October Country. And as their last Bradbury piece, they recorded Bradbury's Leviathan 99. Now, I'm going to go off at a tangent at this point, so bear with me. Leviathan 99, in brief, it's Moby Dick in space. You see, Bradbury wrote the screenplay for the 1956 film of Moby Dick. And sometime after he finished working on the film, he started work on... Leviathan 99, Moby Dick in space. It's as if he couldn't let go of the material, and he had to find a way of making it his own. Well, sometime in the early 60s, he began writing Leviathan in prose form, but then he developed it as a radio play, with the original intention that the great Norman Corwin would direct it. But he couldn't sell it to any American radio network, because by the early 60s, Radio drama was seen as being well and truly dead. Anyone looking for drama had long since moved over to television, and American radio had evolved into being a source of music and news, nothing else. So, Bradbury got Leviathan 99, his radio play, and he sent it to the BBC, who still produce radio drama to this day, and... They produced it in 1968 with Christopher Lee in a starring role, but without Bradbury's preferred director, Norman Corwin. Some writers would have left it there, but Bradbury can't let go, so next he turned Leviathan into a stage play, which premiered around 1973 in Hollywood. But he still couldn't let it go. A bit like Ahab from Moby Dick, He seems a bit obsessed with this project. 
Well, eventually, in 2007, his prose version of Leviathan 99 finally comes out in a book called Now and Forever. He hadn't quite managed to expand it to the length of a novel, but it did turn out to be a decent novella. Finally, in May of 2009, C.A.R.T. brought Bradbury's story back as a radio drama by adapting his novella into a radio play. And they brought in Norman Corwin to assist in directing it at the ripe old age of 99. Among the cast for this were William Shatner, who played the alien Quell, the equivalent of Moby Dick's Queequeg, uh, Sean Astin as Ishmael, and the supporting cast included Walter Koenig, Richard Hurd and Samantha Egger. All of these cart productions were performed live in front of an audience and released on CD and MP3. I'm not sure what's happened to cart now. I know Peggy Webber is 94 years old and the old cart website seemed to be defunct. So maybe cart is no longer with us. So that's two American Bradbury productions that I've talked about. The third one, and it's a big one, is Colonial Radio Theatre. Unlike nearly all the previous producers of Bradbury, Colonial, under the leadership of actor, writer, director Jerry Robbins, went not for short stories, but for the novels. They did versions of Dandelion Wine, The Halloween Tree, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and The Martian Chronicles. In some cases, they used Bradbury's own scripts, stage plays which were quietly adapted for the audio medium. Colonial's approach was always very different to California artists. Instead of live performance in front of an audience, Colonial was pure radio, recorded in a studio, and often painstakingly assembled, more like a film really, with extensive post-production and music scoring. And in many ways, their productions remain the definitive adaptations of Bradbury. Well, now let's meet this week's guest on Bradbury 100. He variously wrote, produced, directed or acted in all of Colonial Radio Theatre's Bradbury adaptations. Let's meet Jerry Robbins. My guest today on Bradbury 100 is writer, director and actor Jerry Robbins. Jerry is the mastermind behind Colonial Radio Theatre, a company whose audio dramas have included original works such as the long-running Powder River series and adaptations of works by H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, P.G. Woodhouse, among others. Jerry is also the most prolific screenwriter I know. Jerry, welcome to Bradbury 100. Hi, Phil. Thank you. Thanks. Browsing through the colonial back catalogue, we find a number of historical works and period dramas, but also a fair amount of science fiction and horror. Does this sort of eclectic mix reflect your own interests? Yes and no. Um, we we started 25 years ago and we we're in Boston, Mass, and I had been writing audio drama just as a hobby. I had been a stage actor, had my fill of that, still wanted to be creative, so I discovered radio. And I thought, this is a lot of fun. You know, you can have all the actors around and you can still be creative and you don't have to go through weeks of rehearsal and performances every night. So I did that as a hobby, basically just transcribing classic radio shows like Lux Radio Theater and things like that. But after doing about a hundred of these for fun, we never could release them anywhere. They were, you know, copywritten and everything. They were just for fun. A friend of mine, Mark Vandenberg said, you're getting really, you know, good at this radio writing stuff and the Productions sound good, and why don't we do something we can sell? So being in Boston, it's natural with all the gift shops that we would do something historical for the Boston gift shops. And at this time, we're talking cassette tapes, you know. So I wrote my first original script, Battle Road. It took about a year to get it packaged and manufactured and all this stuff. We had to figure out how to do everything, and it went in the gift shops and it sold like crazy. It really started selling well. So the next obvious step was 
the con USS Constitution, the old Ironsides in Boston Harbor. So I went and did a show on that, did a lot of research on it to hopefully get them as accurate as I could, but still make them entertaining. And went into the Constitution Museum and the guy was interested and he took them and I think they still sell them to this day. I think they sell them now, but that's how it started. The, next, the ghost stories came about because of the Boston Harbor, you know, the Boston Harbor and the ghost things and the Fort Warren, which is supposedly haunted. So it was sort of strategic to try to do stuff that would sell and not, it wasn't really things I would particularly pick to do myself. I love horror. I love ghost stories. But at that time it was, I'm like, how do you do this on radio? It's so, it's, it's it's really hard to do horror on radio, and I didn't think I was that good at it, so we only did a couple of them. That's how it started, and they kept work. You know, we did the Plymouth Adventure for the Pilgrims, of, and the we just started to do things that would hit gift shops, and then we had to move to CDs. But the problem was these gift shops in Boston. We were in like 30 or something of them, but they would never reorder on their own. They wanted a salesperson to come in and say, "Oh, you're out. Let me put the order in for you." They all did that, and I was the salesman. I had to go into. I went into Boston and walked ten miles a day, twenty miles from you know you park in a garage and you go to all these different gift shops and you order and oh my gosh, it was just it was crazy and I did that for a long time. But then we started branching out and doing adaptations. I think Treasure Island may have been the first one we did, and adapting books, and we did this for years and then. Um, in 2005, we did The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And by this time, I had written a lot of scripts. And Sleepy Hollow is tough because there's no character dialogue. It's all a narrative. There's nobody, there's not a line in Sleepy Hollow that says, Ichabod Crane said, blah, blah, blah. So that script was tough, but we recorded it. It did very well. And after we did that, a critic said, why don't you send this to a publisher and let them do all the running around? I didn't know anything about that. And they said, go to Blackstone Audio. So we looked at Blackstone Audio. They didn't appear to have any audio drama. I remember thinking, they're not going to take this. And the guy said, no, they want audio drama, trust me. So, all right, so we tried. And Blackstone said, we can't talk to you for six months. We can't even listen to anything for six months. Send it but we can't listen to it for six months. We're building a new studio and we're too busy. So Mark sent them Sleepy Hollow and something else. I can't remember what it was. And literally, I think within a couple of weeks, we heard from Blackstone and they wanted to put us under contract to release Sleepy Hollow and a bunch of other things. So we did. The first of your Ray Bradbury colonial productions was Dandelion Wine, which is actually an audio production of Ray's stage play, rather than an adaptation of the novel. Can you tell me how that came about? Five days after we signed the contract, they called and said, would you like to do a show with Ray Bradbury? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> who wouldn't? <laughs> and I said, what is it? And they said, it's something wicked this way comes. I'm like, oh my god! I saw the film when I was, you know, well, I can't say I was a kid. I think when, what year did that come out? Do you remember? 1983. Yeah, so I was 23 when it came out. So, but I did see it. I love the story, so I, I immediately went out and bought the book. And I'm reading the book, but at the same time, we had just t undertaken Captain Blood. And I was, I started writing that in January. This is 2006, and we were going to do the entire book of Captain Blood, the whole thing. And my plan was to write it starting in January. We were going to do it in half-hour installments so it could go on the air because at that point we were with XM Radio. So I said, Let, we'll, we'll write it as half-hour installments, put it on the air, and then for all the in-between episodes, we chop the credits out, and when it sticks together, it's going to be one continuous long production. Blackstone, when they told us about the Bradbury Project, they asked what we had coming up and we'd mentioned the Captain Blood and they said oh if you can get that out for the summer we could release it on the coattails of Pirates of the Caribbean which was coming out and I was thinking well that could be fun you know but this is January and we're talking a script that's going to be close to 400 pages and I had just started writing it I kept working on it it got the script going and 
at the same time we're supposed to be doing the Bradbury project, something wicked. So I'm reading the book and we would, I'd have to write a script a week in those days because the way we recorded, we were taping Captain Blood every Monday. We caught up really quick. We had to start recording in February. I wasn't planning on starting until, you know, maybe April to start recording. We tape on Monday and then the actors needed the script for the next week's show. I remember very well recording and then going back and taping the show and then after the session writing next week's script going in and, oh, it was murder. And we did the whole thing. The script ended up being, I think, 369 pages. And we did the whole thing in top to bottom in three months. I was exhausted when it was over. But in the same time, I was writing to Blackstone saying, where's the script? Because they said Ray had the script for something wicked that they wanted us to use. And I had read the book just so I could start getting in my head what we were going to need for this. I didn't get the script till I think it was mid-April. No one sent me the script. Finally, the lady at Blackstone who I was talking to said, oh, it's been here all the time. It's not something wicked. It's dandelion wine. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, great. And I tape in a month. And they wanted it out because it's a summer type show, can we have this out by Labor Day? And I'm like, you know, we're talking with Colonial, we have music scores and all that music stuff is written. You know, it's written for the 30 piece, you know, orchestra or even probably even more. I don't know what Jeff uses, but everything, even though it's music samples from an orchestra, you still have to orchestrate every single part you're putting in that piece. So finally the script shows up and I read it and I had started to read the book, Dandelion Wine. I read the script, and, and in the middle, the stage play, which I'm sure you've read, there's a, um, a segment where Doug gets his new tennis shoes. And in the stage play, the way it's written, it's all done with pantomime. And it's about five pages, as I recall. So I called up Blackstone, and I said, there's like five pages of pantomime here. I, I have to, because when they sent me the script, I got this big warning, and no way can this be altered in any way, shape, or form. You can't add the word the in here. It has to be done the way it is, which is fine if I was doing it on stage. But I called them up, and I said, I can't do this as, as it's written because there's five pages of pantomime, and this is an audio show. No, you can't change anything. It can't be changed. Then I have to cut it out. You can't cut that segment out. It's very important. I said, okay, you're going to be the one that calls up Mr. Bradbury and explains to him why in the middle of this show there's five minutes of silence and all you hear is some kid running around. And that's it. There's nothing else. You can explain to him. Okay? Have a nice day. And I hung up. About less than 15 minutes later, I got an email. It was from Ray himself. And this is the first contact I had had with him. He thanked me for doing the show. I really appreciate it. He said, you can make any changes you need to make that scene work. I totally understand. Let me see it before you record it. So I wrote it out. I needed to make a few other tweaks because you, you can't just do things in radio. People don't see it. You might have to do some descriptive dialogue. I try to be very sneaky with it so it's not obvious. Like, let's open the door. I don't do things like that. But I needed to make a few more tweaks. Ray read it, and he wrote back, and he said, it's great. Let's go. Let's do it. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, thank goodness. As you were talking, I pulled the play off the shelf and I was just looking through it, trying to find the um, tennis shoe scene. I'm just going to read a little portion of this. These are the stage directions. It goes, wham, blackout, bang. Here come the tennis shoe boys again, running. And here also comes Douglas, arms laden with shoe boxes. But even burdened as he is, he is catching up, catching up. And then it says, and I quote, for a full 30 seconds, we watch the race in slow motion, with Douglas gradually passing the boys. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> I absolutely see what your problem was with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, now that you mention that, I, I, I remember a memory coming back, because I, I haven't read that script in 14 years. But I remember now saying to Jeff, maybe we can have the music slow down, like... Yeah, that's what I... And they were, they were there telling me, you can't change this. And I'm like, I have to. It's going to be pretty boring if I don't. You know, it works great on stage, but not, not for an audio drama. 
It's interesting that the obstruction to it, if you like, wasn't coming from Bradbury himself because he was quite happy for you to make any adjustments that were needed to make it work in another medium. The obstruction was coming from somewhere else. That's the agents being the gatekeepers. We tried to get somebody in one of our productions. It was a kind of a big star. And the agent just shut us down immediately. No, doesn't do audio drama. No. Now, I know if I had met this person in person, he would have loved to have done it because I saw interviews with him saying, I'm dying to do a radio drama. I'll do it for free. I don't care. I want to be in a radio drama. And that's why we contacted this guy's agent, shut us down immediately because the agent is going to get 10% of nothing worthwhile, you know, because yeah. there's no, not a lot of money in this stuff. So we couldn't even get to the guy. And I'm sure if he knew about it, he would have loved to have done it. It would take an hour out of his life and, or two hours out of his life, you know. And we were even going to go to New York to record it. But no, that, that wouldn't happen. So I think with Ray, his agents were – I didn't think they really quite grasped that this was a radio play. If it was on stage, they're doing the right thing. Yeah, you don't change someone's stage script. But this wasn't for the stage. And I don't think they quite got it. I think they were still in the, no, no, you don't change anything in the script. They weren't thinking what the medium was. I can't really blame them. And, and they did get the point, because I think Ray totally understood once they told him, he wants to change. He says there's five pages of no dialogue. And Ray probably said, yeah, that's probably right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Ray, Ray, Ray wrote for radio. He, he knew, you know, you, you can't do that kind of stuff. And I knew music would carry a lot of that sequence, the pantomime sequence with the, with the way it is on stage where he's running. But we added in all the kids and everything, and it worked out really well. So now we had to record it, and I was so nervous because I'm thinking, my gosh, this is Ray Bradbury. He's going to hear this. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson's never going to hear our production of Treasure Island, <laughs> but Ray's going to hear this. <laughs> so it was a little... A little nerve-wracking, it really was. And I know, you know, he had had numerous audio productions done before, and I wanted to, you know, to measure up with it and just do the best show we could. Now I had just finished Captain Blood, so my brain was really in pirate mode. Captain Blood ran, I think it ran something like seven hours long. Lots of fights, lots of fighting sequences, and guns and cannons and massive stuff and then i got to dandelion wine and i'll never forget it they had to set up a porch swing and i'm like wow i just did pirates of tortuga here and i don't how do i set up a porch swing (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what they sounded like in the 1920s i remember asking my dad i said dad you were around in 1929 what did a porch swing sound like i don't have a porch swing it had little challenges like that how do you do fireflies in a bottle you know but the play and then I, I read the play and I'm like, this is totally different from the book. And I said to Mark, I said, Vandenberg, I said, when this thing comes out, people are going to expect the audio book, Dandelion Wine. And I don't think at that point it had ever been put on audio tape. I don't think anyone had recorded the book Dandelion Wine as an audio book at this point in time. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. So I said to Mark, I said, people are going to think I did this. You know, like I'm doing my version of it. And I remember asking Ray, I said, people are going to think, you know, people may not like this. And he did say something similar to that. Like, well, you'll, yeah, but you'll get the blame or something like that. I forget what it was. But I did ask him at some point, why is it so different from the book? And he said, because I already did the book. And he said, this is how I see it now. And I thought, wow, how prolific is that? You know, when he wrote the book, he was writing a childhood memoir, so to speak. But now, 50 years after that, he wants to interact with that world the way he is now. He wants to interact with that world from the 20s. And I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And of course, there's a a character in the play who, if I remember rightly, turns out to be Douglas Spaulding, but grown up and he's come back to the past somehow. And that's Ray's alter ego coming back and talking to his younger self. And so I was I got to admit, I was nervous when we did it we recorded it memorial day weekend i remember that we had a really good cast i really wanted to capture that saturday night on the porch kind of atmosphere i love old movies that take place in small towns all the old disney films and that hometown atmosphere that is quickly slipping away that's my favorite period of time is just little porch conversations and the little things and I really related to that book and I loved it and I was 
I really wanted to do the book as written, but you know, at that point we were told to do the play. But I really think that Dandelion Wine as written would be magnificent. So we did the show, and I listened to it like I, last night, actually. I hadn't heard it in about 10 years, and I remember that the little kid, how good he was. Boy, he was so good, and he's got his little fireflies, and he's shaking up the fireflies. I'm like, fireflies don't make any sound, so I, I had something. It doesn't sound like jelly beans, but I was thinking this kid's shaking the bottle to get the light going. I'm thinking those poor fireflies in there, their eyes must be like, but it was just... I don't think they'd make any sound, but we had to put a sound in there for radio, you know, otherwise you don't know what the kid's doing. And we finished the show on time. I don't know how, you know, Jeff wrote that score in a couple of weeks and it's a pretty elaborate score and we had it ready for Labor Day. We got it out to them. We recorded in May, I think by mid to late June, it was done because I remember Ray heard it July 4th weekend. So that's like record time. And then Blackstone says, well, we've decided to release it in January. And I, I could have wrung somebody's neck because it was just so everybody did yeoman's work to get that thing out on time. And they also held up Captain Blood. That didn't go out in the summer. They held that up, to, I think, till after Dandelion Wine came out. Ray heard the show July 4th weekend. I got a letter from him. I have it on the wall here from the 9th. He loved it. And he said it made him cry. And I got a beautiful email from him and said, this might be the first time that someone dramatized one of my works. And it's exactly the way I wanted it done. There's nothing extra in there. There's, you didn't try to put your own spin on it. And I'm like, well, your agents wouldn't let me, but I wouldn't anyway. <laughs> he really loved it. It's really funny because I have it on my wall here. When he listened to it, at the end, he says, P.S., can you send me six copies? <laughs> it was just amazing. And your next Bradbury production, Something Wicked This Way Comes, is also from Ray's stage script, although most listeners would be hard-pressed to uh, spot any differences from the novel. Presumably, though, you must have made some small adjustments to make it work for audio only. I got an email from him again, and at the end of the email he said, now would you like to do Something Wicked This Way Comes? which is what you thought you were going to be doing in the first place. Yeah, and I said, yes, and do I write the script or do you have one? He said, I have one. So he sent me the script, and I was surprised. It was very similar to the book. I think the only thing that was different, you, you will probably know better than I, but I think the only thing that was different was the ending. In the, in the play, he has them run back into the town when they have the little race at the end and they touch the barber pole, which is the center part of the play, really, the way it's written. And they touch the barber pole for their race. And in the book, they touch the railroad crossing gate thing. Yeah. So I asked him, I said, can we just have them do it ending the way it is in the book with them running to the, the railroad gate so I don't have to do another five-page pantomime going into town? Because <laughs> how do I have them go into town? If it's a movie, yeah, I could do it, but... Not like this. Uh, so he said, sure. And I think he was trusting me a little more at this point. And we did the script just as he wrote it. And it was it, it did present some challenges. We did have to add some sounds of the clowns and things when they came in. We had to put little guttural kind of sounds when that scary parade marches through town and everything. We taped this one, recorded at the end of September of 2006. So these... Dandelion Wine and this one happened very close together. And we had an audition to get the two kids. And it's important, you try it when you're casting kids at that age, you really want to get distinctive voices for audio because otherwise kids can sound very much alike at that age. So in Dandelion Wine, we had a kid with a very husky kind of voice and thought that would be, he's perfect because there's not another kid in the cast that's going to sound like him. And then the other kid who had a more generic voice, that was fine. But you always knew who was speaking. You didn't have to like, whoa, wait a minute, who is that? What we auditioned for Something Wicked, again, we picked two kids that were very distinctive in their sounds. But we had a whole bunch of kids show up, probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 kids for the audition. And they were all excellent. I mean, they were Every single one of them was great. And the only reason some of them weren't cast was because when you listen to them for an audio theater audition, I don't look at them, I listen to them. 
And I'm like, yeah, they sound very similar. These two kids sound very similar, although they were both excellent actors. All these kids were acting in plays downtown Boston. They were all professionals. And they were just good. With your next Bradbury, uh, which was The Halloween Tree, you did the adaptation yourself. Did that make it easier or harder to produce? J.T. Turner was going to... I had already picked him to play Mr. Dark. He said, you know, Ray's got this book called The Halloween Tree, and it's got like eight boys in it. You've got your cast right here. And I'm like, really? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I knew The Halloween Tree, but i like, wow. So I'm driving home, and I'm thinking, dare I? <laughs> so I contacted Ray and said, you know... The cast is all set for something wicked, and we got some great kids that showed up, and we could really pull off the Halloween tree. Do you have a script for that? And he wrote back, let's do it. He said, I don't have a script, but get my book, go out and buy my book, and get a red pen and cut out all the exposition stuff, get rid of all the narrative, and just keep the dialogue, because I write like a script. All my characters are written like a script. So get your red pen and cross everything out. I got the book right here in front of me. I pulled it out. It looks like one of my movie scripts now, after it gets back from script coverage, got red marks all through it. He let us do it. So I, he said, just set it up with my agents. His agents must have hated me, because I'd call them, you know, hey, Ray wants us to do another... Um, project here and okay halloween tree good so now we were taping something wicked at the end of september i remember one night we had to stop early because the next day was the first day of school and then i immediately went into production with the halloween tree which we were going to tape in december the bulk of halloween tree was recorded in one day we started at like nine in the morning and we had to finish by four because a lot of the kids were in christmas shows downtown you know christmas carol and all that stuff and they were on stage that night so we had to finish most of the kids were done in one day and then the mound shroud stuff and jt's narration were done later so we could just keep going and get all the kids done and get them out of there. So all the sequences with the kids were done, and then we saved the rest. I think we ended up doing like five sessions for Halloween Tree. I realized with Halloween Tree and also for Something Wicked, but really for Halloween Tree, music was going to be paramount. It really needed a full score. Ray had written lyrics to songs in the book. So Jeff told me that this brand-new music program had come on the market that utilized real instruments. It, it literally, I heard demos. It sounded like the Boston Pops. And I said, I can't do Halloween Tree when I know there's a better music program out there than the one we're using. So we did the show, but we didn't edit it right away. We held it because we wanted to bank up enough money so we could buy this music program, which was very expensive. In the meantime, Something Wicked was edited and Dandelion Wine was released before the others. And it was not met with great response at the time. I know a lot of people were disappointed because it was not the book. Because people were listening, expecting it to be the book, and it wasn't the book. It's like a Twilight Zone version of Dandelion Wine. But it's what Ray wanted. And now, in retrospect, I, I didn't quite get it then, but now I get it, why he wanted to do it that way. I'm very proud of it. I think it came out great. We got slammed by, I think you gave us a good review. Some others really hated it. They just didn't like it. Then Something Wicked came out, and that fared a little better, but not quite. In terms of sales, I think it did okay. When Halloween Tree came out, that wasn't released until 2008, almost two years after we recorded it. It took almost a year to edit, just to put it together, because it was so complex. The scene where he builds the kite, that scene took a couple of weeks for Chris Snyder. Chris Snyder edited that show brilliantly. And the scene with the kite, the building the kite, and the Notre Dame Cathedral sequences, you know, he did a fantastic job editing those. And I'll never forget a review came out and it said, the only sound effects we used is howling wind. There was probably close to 100,000 sound effects used in that. Some guy said, they only used howling wind. I'm like, oh, okay. So you listened to like the first 10 minutes and figured you knew the rest. Ray loved them. He loved every single one of them, all three of them at that point won awards. They won Best Audio Drama for Science Fiction. So Ray was very happy with them, and that was that's all I wanted. And when we do shows based on books at Colonial, I, it's important to me to do the author's vision. I don't want to put my own spin in. 
I, I don't want to take a novel that's going to take five or six hours and cut it down to 90 minutes. We either do the whole thing or we don't do it at all. That's what the philosophy was. I've noticed this is true of people who work in radio. There seems to be more attention paid to the source material than there is in film, where in film it's basically we'll buy the property, then we'll throw it away and do something loosely inspired by the property. But in radio sure. there really does seem to be much more intention to sort of reincarnate the book and, and bring it to life. I think with film you're limited with time. If you made a, a movie and you really stuck to the book and you wanted to get it into a cinema not too many people are going to want to sit through a seven-hour movie. So you have to do adaptations, and you have to condense it. And sometimes when you condense it, you need to create some instances that aren't in the book to form the bridges between the scenes. Otherwise, it's like, whoa, wait, wait a minute, where'd this scene come from? Captain Blood with Errol Flynn is one of the very few movies where pretty much everything on the screen appears in the book. In contrast to that, The Seahawk, also written by Sabatini, they pretty much kept the title and threw out the story. And he wanted nothing to do with that movie. I think he tried to get his name off the credits. But Captain Blood is magnificent. It's, I mean, I've read the book. I studied the book. I adapted from the book. They left a lot out. Mm. But everything on screen was not some writer's idea of what Captain Blood should be. They did Sabatini in that movie. It's quite unusual for the time period. And I think in audio drama, you do want to stay close to the book. You don't have to. There are adaptations out there that are very different based on some classic books. But the Bradbury books were unusual in that they weren't public domain books. They were still under copyright. The author was still alive. And you want to make the author happy. I don't like people screwing around with story. I try never to do it because I just think, what if I was in their place and someone took my story and suddenly just made it totally different? Nah, I could never do that. With the Halloween tree, when he told you just cross out all the exposition, was he right? Because he always used to say, well, my books are film scripts. All you have to do is tear the pages out of the book and stuff them in the camera. Did yeah. you find that crossing out the action and sticking with the dialogue was enough or, or was there much more involved? I'm sure there must have been. Well, my first approach was to not have a narration in it. I don't like narrators in radio plays. I think it's a it's an easy way out. It, it was the, his writing is so beautiful. I said I I just can't even imagine doing this without some of these words in here. It they're just so beautiful and the way he describes October and if I pulled that out, we could have just done it and, and just had the kids dialogue. But you're just missing all that atmosphere. So I did decide to write it with a, a narrator, and I thought it would be somewhat sporadic there's more dialogue than narration but the opening lines in that play i can't remember off the top of my head but it's just it just sets the scene it's beautiful raid narrated it in the tv version it wasn't as easy as that but it wasn't difficult either i didn't make up any dialogue character dialogue but I did have to take some narration and add some things around, like with, when they're on the broomsticks, look down below, stuff like that. I had to add little bits, but nothing of substance. It was relatively easy. I think if it was my first project I had ever done, it would have been very difficult. But I, by that point, I had already adapted a bunch of books, and it was a little bit easier. And he loved the script. He read everything first. He read. He had to approve everything before we recorded anything. He wanted to see them. I think he may have come back with a couple of notes for Halloween Tree for some alterations or changes, and we did them. But for the most part, it was a, it was fairly straightforward. I'm trying to look at it here. Yeah, I, I, I have the book here, music, music under, and I cut. There's a big paragraph, and I would cut segments of it. At one point, I cut almost two pages, but my notes in here are. In the book, I'm looking at them. They ran down through a ravine at a swift rush, all laughing. I just put sound, sliding, cheers, running, sand. It was fun to do. It was tough at the same time. You know, I think the tough part was the sound effects guy. He, he just went through the ringer on that one. And Jeff, you know, it's, it's almost wall-to-wall -wall music in that. But Jeff liked it because, oh, he could suddenly use Egyptian-sounding instruments with the mummy sequence. And it, he could use a lot of different kinds of, you know, music styles. Yeah, yeah. And there's that whole Notre Dame sequence in there. And 
choruses of voices and as you say the lyrics that ray had already written um into the book well <laughs> jeff said how do i write music for this he said these words are tough and he said they're not really lyrical you know with the um even mound shroud sings a couple of things in here going through the book trying to find yeah they start to sorry this is really bad podcasting here with dead silences as i'm thumbing through this book but the i'm trying to think find the part with the witch's brooms and oh well i can't find i'm gonna give up but none of it rhymed it's not and jeff's like i don't know if i can do this and i said you have to do it. i said it's gonna be the only time in your career where you can say music by jeffrey gage lyrics by ray bradbury and he said yeah you're right i'm on it he did it somehow the broom one was really a tough one to do the halloween tree song itself was uh, a little bit easier but we were criticized for that you know colonial how to put musical numbers in it and it's like you know no we didn't the, the songs are in the book read the book you know i thought jeff did a good job we sort of took a disney approach with the halloween tree oh here it is the broom the broom works makes the broom makes the broom that looms on a sky in gloom and rising of the moon that broom which groom to which flies high on harvesting of stormwind grass with shriek and sigh to motion it in ocean seas of cloud now soft now loud and jeff was like i don't know how to but he did it really he was very clever the way he did it very staccato dun 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 and, and he he broke it up so the the lyrics actually kind of fit they sound more lyrical i guess than it's a tongue twister to try to read it it's just magnificent and when you read the words it's like you can't cut this it's it's great stuff you know it's it's wonderful it's funny because though i don't think people remember those parts when they've read the book you know they they get all the imagery and so on and at the time of reading it obviously you're conscious of those words being there but i think when you think back to the book you don't remember that there are those sort of implied musical interludes in there it says they sing the pumpkins sing you know and he wrote that halloween tree song and he wrote it in very close harmony, so it does indeed sound like an old Disney film. We were sort of criticized at the time for sticking in musical numbers. I'm like, eh, all right, well, I'll take the bullet. But <laughs> we didn't put them in on our own. They were in the book. I'm very proud of them. I think they came out pretty good, and the cast did great jobs. Everyone loved them. Everyone had fun doing them. Everyone loved Ray Bradbury. I got to tell you, even the kids knew of Ray Bradbury and one of I have to be in this he's my favorite author so people had a lot of respect for Ray and they loved Ray and I think that shines through in the performances you know everyone wanted to do a good job for Mr. B. Were you concerned or are you ever concerned about the running time of something like that because obviously the length of the book to a large extent is going to dictate the running time of the adaptation is, is that at all of concern to you? I was concerned a long time ago when we were doing shows on cassette tape, because cassette tape, you only had 60 minutes. I think we did Gettysburg. It was up to that point, our longest one. It was three hours and 20 minutes or something like that. And it was on three cassettes. And the last cassette, like you had to be careful because the publisher wouldn't want to put out a third or fourth cassette that only had 20 minutes on it. You know, it, it just ramps up the money. So in those days, we were careful. Well, the plays were easy because they were written for theater time, Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked. He had already written them for the stage, so they weren't going to be more than two and a half hours. We could do that on CDs. Halloween Tree was a short book, so that one came out to just a little over two hours, I think. So we didn't really have any problem with those. Martian Chronicles, I knew was going to be a big one and multi-CDs. But no, I don't think of the running time. To a degree, I guess I do. But these days, no, not at all. And the Bradbury stuff was never going to be broadcast. I think we only did one broadcast of the Halloween tree. But the other programs have never been on the air, just for sale for downloads and CDs. Um, on The Martian Chronicles, you wrote the script for that yourself. But Ray did have a stage play for that, so I'm surprised he didn't send you his, his script. I remember writing to him and saying... I'd like to do Martian Chronicles. He at one point suggested doing Fahrenheit 451. And um, I wanted to do stuff that really hadn't been out there before. And Martian Chronicles, I was attracted to because it had never been done in its entirety. That was a challenge to me. 
and I really wanted to see if we could do it. I don't think he ever mentioned his stage play to me. I don't think he ever said I have a stage play. That's just an interesting thing to know that he he didn't even mention it or offer it to you. I I think on reflection, I think what you did is better than the stage play because his stage play is extremely condensed. The book is really not a novel, it's a collection of short stories and the stage play is really rushed to try and fit everything in. And I think by this time too, he had heard three of our shows, he trusted us, I, I think, I'm just assuming, I don't know. But I think that he may have trusted us to know that we weren't going to butcher the story and we were going to tell it like it was. It, it was the toughest one that we did out of all of the Bradbury projects. I wrote it in segments per the chapters of the book. We recorded, I think it took over 20 recording sessions to get it done. But we were also doing Buck Rogers at the time. It's a production we did that was never released. I think we did 16 or 17 recording sessions for Buck Rogers, and there was an in-and-out cast, you know, people coming and going every week. It was a, it was sort of told as a serial almost, and we had different people every week except for the leads. I remember recording saying, oh, here, we got Rocket Summer. We're going to tape this after this episode because these actors are going to be here. The Wilderness, we'll do this with these people because they'll be... And we did it. That's pretty much how we did it. There were only a couple of recording sessions dedicated specifically 100% to the Martian Chronicles. But the others were all done after Powder River sessions. I just hold the cast over and everybody would be in it. And that's why the Martian Chronicles has a, so many people in it. The cast is huge. You, we didn't have everyone show up in one day and do the Martian Chronicles. It was done over a period of a few months. That was a difficult one because of the, <laughs> there was one chapter, of course, I think the the one with the What's it called? You know, there will be there will be soft rains or something. What's the name of it, Phil? There will come soft rains. That was the toughest one to do uh, because no one says anything. <laughs> I don't know if it worked or not, but we did it. Again, we were criticized for doing Usher 2 and taking out the episode way up in the air, I think, was taken out of the book. But that was Ray's call. He wanted it done that way, and he wanted us to do the version that put the the newer version that he had released with the years changed. So we did that version of the book. And Usher 2, I believe it wasn't even originally set on Mars. Isn't that correct? That's right. Yes, it originally didn't say where it was. Um, it, he only inserted the Mars references when he put it into the book. Yeah, We had some reviews when it came out that people just didn't like, you know, they, I don't know why they picked that one to be in there. And it doesn't fit with the rest of them. I mean, none of them really fit. They're all different. When Ray heard the Martian Chronicles, he wrote back and I asked him, I said, which is your favorite episode? Usher 2. Mm. <laughs> it's just being defiant, I think, to, to the critics. <laughs> Usher 2 is one of the most elaborate ones, I think. So we have that dance macabre in there, which is wonderful. That one took a longer time than the others to do. But yeah, it was a challenging script, to say the least. I don't even know if I still have the script anywhere for Martian Chronicles. I, I had a hard drive crash as things were being uploaded to the cloud. I said I need to protect a lot of these things. And we had a, a, something sparked and we lost everything on the disk. And I think my Bradbury scripts were there because I, I can't seem to locate them anywhere. But what you were saying about the cast of that, I, I didn't know that it had been recorded in that sort of fragmentary way with different casts who happened to be around at the time kind of thing. When you're listening to it, you are aware that there are so many voices. It really feels like a big cast and therefore it, it feels like a huge production. Yeah, you can't use the same people because after a while, especially in audio, it's like, wait a minute, that guy, so this guy moved over to there now? and it, So you really needed different people in it. The book is so diverse. I mean, it's just, it is all over the place. I mean, I was looking at some reviews on Amazon and, oh boy, we get hammered. And some people love it and get it. And other people are like, well, this made no sense. None of it made any sense. And I'll, I'm going to read the book. And I'm like, well, okay. Really makes me respect him. He, The guy was so prolific. I mean, to write something like Dandelion Wine and then something like The Martian Chronicles, it's just night and day. He wasn't a one-note guy. I don't know if this is a famous quote of his, but I spoke with him on the phone and he asked me, what are you doing or what are you working on? And and I told him I'm writing a script and I said, but I have writer's block. I said, I'm really stuck on the script I'm working on. And he said, there's no such thing as writer's block. If you have writer's block, you don't have a story. 
I've never looked it up to see if he said that elsewhere, if that was a famous quote, but he told me on the phone. I didn't know if it was original or if it, if he had said it before, but I'm like, you know, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I think just that little comment made me, you know, he would just write something, write anything. And he said, I write every day. I get up at 8 o'clock, I'm writing at 8 o'clock, and I stop at noon, and he said, I write what I dreamed. And he said, sometimes it's nothing, and other times it's Fahrenheit 451. It's, it's quite amazing. It's it's so much fun to know that we were able to make him happy, you know, and that he liked the shows that we did. He was the most important critic that I was worried about. Sending him dandelion wine that first time, I was more nervous than an opening night in a show. It was just nerve-wracking to think, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Am I going to hear from the publishers saying they don't want this released or or what. I was just thrilled when he liked it. Generally speaking, in the Colonial Productions, are the sound effects and music all done in post-production rather than sort of live on the studio floor? Yeah. Well, Jeff Gage is pretty funny because I would write a script like Escape to the Wind, which was about the old Ironsides. Old Ironsides in a battle with the Barbary Pirates or something. I'd write the script and send it to Jeff. And then he'd start scoring it before we even recorded anything. And I'm like, well, shouldn't you wait till it's done? Nah, let's just do it. And I would finish editing and then go to put the music on, and it timed out perfectly. I don't know how he did it. To this day, I don't know how he did it. Because I'm not kidding. When I say it ended perfectly, it's like the scene would finish and the music would just finish. I'm like, how did he know the timing on this thing? When we got to something wicked and the halloween tree probably even dandelion wine i know he did post the music afterwards sound effects are always done afterwards i edited dandelion wine and chris snyder did something wicked and halloween tree with me dandelion wine there were a lot of effects that had to be created there were some that you know i have extensive sound effects libraries that we bought licenses for and, and all that so we do have some like the BBC collection, things like that. So there's there's some sound effects that we create. Like I said, the screen porch, that was like a day's work trying to figure out how to set up a screen porch. And it's silly little things, but you know, I'm thinking you need little springs and things like this. You need the movement. The thing is you have to make sure the actor's voices when you're recording fit the action that's going to be there. They don't hear the cannons in Captain Blood. An actor is there and they're talking loud. I'm like, no, no one's going to hear you. I said, you have to scream until your your throat hurts. And they're standing there, and they're they're screaming loud in this chair. Ah! And it, it does look kind of silly when you're doing it. But later, there's literally 40 cannons going off. If the ship is 40 guns, there's 40 cannons. There's not two cannons that are supposed to be 40. We have the 40 guns. And it, it shakes your speakers. You know, there's pirate battles in Captain Blood that just shake the room. And you have to hear those voices over it. Same thing with getting on a horse. You know, if you get on a horse, you have to sound like you're getting on a horse for a second if you have a, a line. And that helps when you put the little squeak of leather and the little jingle of a spur and a stirrup. You know, it creates the picture. The Bradbury Project had all different kinds of sounds that we never needed before, that we never would do before. How do you build a kite with animals on the kite picture and the lions roaring and and all this stuff. Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, you have to hear the stones sliding into place as they walk up. It was very challenging to do the Bradbury, more so than some of our more grounded, I guess, <laughs> realistic, I think, is the word, things like pirate battles and Revolutionary War battles and Civil War battles. Those were kind of easier to do, but Bradbury just lives in this different world, and you had to create the worlds, and it was really something. The kid... When he becomes the gargoyle, you know, you, you can't ask a kid to drown himself and drink some water and try to oh, get the word out. So we had to use a sound effect for that, a special effect on his voice to make him sound like he was underwater. These people really need to throw themselves into the situation because if their voices don't reflect the sounds, it's sort of like doing a movie like a Jurassic Park movie where an actor has to react to something that's not there when you're doing action sequences like if you're running you have to make sure the actor's out of breath and all that the voice has to complement the action that's going on just to bring the interview to a close there's a couple of questions that I ask everyone who I interview on this podcast the first one is can you remember the first Bradbury you ever read my dad loved Bradbury and I was like seven or eight years old I can't remember what it was 
but I remember it scared me to death. It was probably a short story. I think when I was in high school, I read Something Wicked This Way Comes. I think that was the first one. And then I saw the movie. So Something Wicked, I think, was the first one. And then when we did the, uh, I thought we were going to be doing it, I reread it years later. So I think Something Wicked, I'd have to say, would be the first one consciously that I could remember. But I know I read a short one when I was much younger. It took me forever to read it because I didn't read that well. I loved the cover of the book, and I just started reading the stories, you know. By the time we did Dandelion Wine, we had done a lot of shows. We had been around for about 11 years at that point. My dad really didn't have much of an interest in audio drama. He didn't. I guess he was of the opinion, like, you're the only one left in the country doing radio, you know? It's like, he just, he didn't get it. He didn't, nothing seemed to impress him. Like, oh, Dad, we just won an award. Oh, that's good. He, he wasn't mean or disinterested. He just didn't understand audio drama. When I told him that we were working with Ray Bradbury, that's when he was impressed. He was like, really? What What are you doing? I said, a radio drama. What do you, like I've been doing for the last, yeah, but Ray Bradbury, oh my goodness. He was a Ray Bradbury fan. Uh, he just loved him. And when I told him I'm working with Ray Bradbury, that's when suddenly I kind of had an interest in what I was doing. <laughs> I don't want to say that he didn't have an interest before, but he just, he just didn't understand it, you know. And the, the second of my regular questions is the desert island question. If you were to be marooned on a desert island and you were allowed to have just one Bradbury item with you, what would you choose? It would be dandelion wine. The, the book or yeah. the play? Book. The book. Because I just love it. I can't say I can relate to my childhood with it, but I can on some level. I'm sure most people do. I can remember relatives coming over and sitting outside by the little fire pit and having cookouts and talking to people and just simpler times no social media having actual friends that you could talk to and not look at little handheld you know having a conversation through texting i just love that time period and i guess i can remember being a kid and world war one veterans selling poppies they must have been world war one because this would be the 60s and they were quite old really old old guys in uniform selling poppies for Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They sold them for both, because I remember getting both. I think they made them themselves at one of the VA hospitals. I remember that. I remember people at parades standing up when the flag went by. Nobody does that anymore. Seeing old veterans with their hand on their heart when the flag went by or saluting it, you don't see that. People don't even sit up off the curb. Dandelion wine brings that back to me. I don't remember having a grandfather they were all gone by the time I came along. So that scene with the grandfather in the cellar making wine, I sort of envision what would that have been like. And it really speaks to me. That would be the book because I think I could read it. I love it. It's written so well. And at the same time, memories of my own childhood flashback. I wish I could go meet my 12-year-old self, give him a real good slap in the face and say, take this path, not that one. <laughs> I wonder if that's also with like, the lonely one with the librarian going down this path like you're not there to tell her to go down this path and i wonder if that's ray 50 years later the older douglas balding saying to the librarian you know he's not always going to be here to tell you what path to go down i somehow wonder if that's ray saying i wish i'd been there to tell you to go down the left path not the right one i don't know i don't know it's just it's just uh that that book means a lot to me i think that's what it would be hands down Earlier on, you said something to the effect that Ray was very prolific as a writer, but you seem to be incredibly prolific as well. I follow you on Facebook. Barely a week goes by that I don't see that you've written another film script. What is the secret to being a prolific writer for you? Well, I think with me, it's driven more by what's going to sell. I've been very lucky. I mean, I wrote my first movie script about 11 years ago, and it was terrible. I thought it was wonderful at the time. But I didn't realize how much I did not know about writing a movie script. Over the years, I worked on it on and off. Radio was just taking up so much time. I mean, I'm not kidding when I'm saying it was 20 hours a day. There was a time we were releasing about 40 productions a year. So there wasn't a lot of time to work on the film script. But I did over, over a period of years. And then I met a guy who is a, a real writer. He's won an Emmy Award and all this stuff. I sent him my script, and it came back with more red ink in it than my Halloween tree book. 
And he said, this is what you did this. And I, I realized I didn't know anything about screenwriting. So I bought every book that there was that was highly rated on how to write screenplays. And I studied them and I worked. And that first script, which was called The Star Angel, went through 70 drafts before I said, I think I know what I'm doing now. And even then I didn't know what I was doing. And then I wrote a horror movie because I saw horror movies were selling. I belonged to a couple of websites and producers go on and shop for scripts. There was a point they were all looking for horror movies. So I wrote a low budget horror movie, which ended up being estimated that it would cost about $40 million (laughs) on my low budget film. That took about 20 drafts. I started to learn how to write for movies, for screenplays. I would send them off for script coverage, which is a place you send your scripts to, and they have professional readers, and some of them have worked with studios, and they were gatekeepers, and they send it back and tell you what's wrong with it. And you have to have really strong armor because they're brutal, but you need them to be. Otherwise, what's the point? You're wasting your time because no one's ever going to produce it. After a time, I, I would always get a pass. You know, this, this is a pass. You might get a consider. No one gets a recommend. You know, 2% of the scripts ish get recommends. I would just keep going over them and over them and trying to get them right. Then I felt that I could do it without all the books. And I thought, I think I'm getting the hang of this now. In 2016, I just stopped writing audio drama, except for Powder River. And I said, I'm going to focus on this movie stuff and I'm going to nail it because I'm tired of seeing passes all the time on my scripts. So I just really worked hard on it. I finished a horror film, a script, and then a producer sent out an email saying he's looking for a a horror movie that takes place in a cabin by a lake with two male lead actors. I don't care about the rest of the cast. So I'm thinking, okay, he's got a location. He's got the two actors. He doesn't have a script. So I said, I'm going to write one. So I wrote a script literally in one week. I sent it to him. I never heard from him again. But within a month, the script sold to another producer. And I'm like, whoa, this is really good. Now, I had done a couple of rewrites, and I did get a recommend rating on it, which was amazing. And then it's one of those, like, this calls for a scotch days. And the movie sold. And then a year later, I wrote a Western script based on some of the characters from my Powder River series. And Mark Vandenberg said, what are you writing a Western for? No one's going to do a Western these days. I said, I just got to get it out of my system. I got to write it. That one sold within six months. It looks like it's going to shoot in August. But I just try to write what the market's calling for. There's a big call for Christmas movies now. So I've written a couple of Christmas scripts. I don't know if they're going to sell or not. They may. They may not. But I just try to, to write what the market is calling for. And luckily, I love horror movies. They're my favorite thing. They're hard to write because I don't want to write subconsciously what some, I saw in some other film, you know. So I've done comedy. I've done horror. I've done musical animation. I've done teen comedy. Got a script called Million Dollar High. And I just try to cover as many genres, which is what we did with Colonial Radio. We just try to cover every genre thinking one of these is going to stick somewhere. My downfall is I write lousy synopses uh, and I write lousy log lines. It's really hard for me to encapsulate a movie in two lines or to condense a 105-page script to three paragraphs. It's not my strong point. I just love writing film scripts. I just absolutely love it. Do you love it more than you loved writing radio scripts? Yeah, I do. You know, I've written, I think the last count was about 480 radio scripts that I've written it's not that they're easy, they're not, but I've done so many of them, there's not a lot of challenge there. Movie scripts are challenging because I'm like, I have to make this good enough for someone to want it and then put a lot of money into filming it. You know, I'm dying to be able to go on the set to watch. And I told the director, I said, I'm not some backseat director. I'm not going to be saying that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't. I won't even remember the end of the script by the point this happens. I just want to see the film getting made because I think it would help me write future scripts. Jerry, it's been great talking to you. Many thanks for joining me today on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Good to talk to you after all these years. My thanks to Jerry Robbins for joining me today. I'll have links to Colonial Radio Theatre and Jerry's Bradbury Productions on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. 
and please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher and all good podcast places. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.